is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Jimmy Paxson. For 12 years, Jimmy was the drummer with Stevie Nicks. He has been the touring drummer most recently with the Dixie Chicks. His resume is insanely long, but a few of the artists of note that he's worked with and toured and recorded with include Ben Harper, Rod Stewart, Joe Sample, Lindsey Buckingham, and Krista McVie, just to name a few for a complete list. Go to the show notes, you'll see a complete list of many of the artists that Jimmy has worked with. If you're interested in finding out more about this episode and all of the over 250 episodes that we've done here at Working Drummer Podcast, you can find us at workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Stitcher, iTunes, where you can subscribe to us. You can also follow us and subscribe to us on Spotify. Check us out there. If you are interested in helping to support what Zach and I do here at the Working Drummer Podcast, patreon.com slash working drummer is where you can go to do a monthly donation that helps support what it is that we do. As we have grown, our expenses have grown along with us, and uh, we've been able to knock out a few of those expenses this year with the help of our patrons that are over there at Patreon. And if you do sign up to donate even as little as a dollar, you have access to educational material that we are regularly populating on that page that as a patron of Patreon, you have exclusive access to. Most recently, we did a masterclass here in Nashville. If Patreon isn't your thing, then we have a PayPal option on our website. You can go there and make a one-time donation. We appreciate everyone's help over the years in keeping this podcast going strong. So here you go, my interview with Jimmy Paxson. I was out in L.A. and we were rehearsing with the, well, not, not even rehearsing, I mean, we were doing some TV shows with the Dixie Chicks and... Um, you know, it was just like all of a sudden it was just, hey, you know, uh, New York is the shows we were going to go do, whatever TV shows or whatnot. Um, the schedule just got, you know, put on hold. And yeah. uh, at first it seemed like, you know, whoa, is this, this is serious or, you know, are we just getting ahead of it? Is this something we really have to worry about to this level or, yeah. wow, what a drag. I mean, none of us questioned it whatsoever. Um but it was just weird because it just was like, you know, things were flowing and then all of a sudden it's like a dead stop. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just urge everybody not to go out and, and do anything. I mean, this sucks. We're all going to, you know, lose a lot of money. We're all going to lose a lot of, of uh, playing time. I, mean, I, I actually, I, you know, I, I still have a spot in L.A. and I reside in Oklahoma now. Mm-hmm. And I had a gig here, uh, I guess it was the day after I got back, and things were still like pretty loose around here, and and I thought, well, are they going to cancel the gig? And, you know, the guys were like, well, no, you know, there's probably only going to be 10 people at this gig anyway, like, let's go do it. And I went down there, and, you know, I actually felt kind of stupid being there. Um, <laughs> and I hate turning down opportunities to play. Which yeah. is really what made me lose my reason with, you know, I'll just go out and do this. You know, it's a little bit of money. It's some 
drinks and food. It's close to the house. There's not too many people. Uh, but really, when I got there, I felt like irresponsible socially um, because you, you don't know who you're going to come in contact with. I don't think I have it, but I mean, I could and I could give it to some somebody, you know, it doesn't matter what age bracket they're in. But God forbid I gave it to somebody who's in a compromised, you know, a, a questionable state sure, internally. Sure. And uh, I just couldn't wait to get back home and just shut it all down, man. And, mm. you know, it's, and then, you know, it's also a time where you can really confront the things you haven't been doing. You know, now you're now you have all the time in the world. So why aren't you doing yoga in your house? Why aren't you <laughs> cleaning out that junk drawer? Why aren't you, you know, tweaking your reading or, you know, take this extra time to go through getting the music together that you need to know for when this whole thing lays down. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you this also from, you know, living, not, not living in LA right now and it's worked out fine, you know, being away, but there's always been this thing in my mind of like, well, you're not working this weekend, but if you were in LA, like, you know, I had a steady bar gig for 11 years oh, wow. uh, whenever I wasn't on tour and it was great, you know, and I just there every weekend that passes that I'm not working when I'm somewhere else like here, you know, I'd think like, well, if I were in L.A., I'd probably have a session or two this week and probably a weekend gig and probably like a gig or two in the middle of the week. But like right now with what's going on, like nobody anywhere mm -hmm. has any gigs. You can't you can't go out, man. This is it. Yeah. You know, I have a studio of my own. Uh, I have a still have a studio in LA and I have another room out here in Oklahoma like to do tracking from afar. I mean everybody has that kind of situation these days right, right. or a lot of people do. But I mean I don't know if the world is in the in the space right now that people are going to look at this and go like oh well uh you know now's a good time for me to do my project because every drummer and bass player and everything else is sitting at home looking for something to do. I don't think the spirit is there, uh, even though, you know, hey, if somebody calls, I'll rise to the occasion and do it. I mean, it's just like right now the focus is on, you know, world health and yeah, getting rid of this thing. Um, not, to, not to pull politics into this, but I mean, sure, uh, I'm not going to be an outspoken guy when we talk here about what I think about this president. But I mean, I listen to these news briefings and the mm. way he just like 10 minutes ago loses it. Loses it on any, uh, you know, journalist who asks a question that's really, you know, the one that you want the answer to. He mm -hmm. tells them they're doing a bad job and they suck and everything else. And I don't think that's good for for uh, the spirit of the country at all to have a guy up there, you know, giving it to people like that yeah. when they're just asking them for a responsible answer to a simple question. So I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question, but I mean, I just feel like the whole thing is completely spun right now. There's legit reason to not, you know, go out and do anything unnecessary. Um, but God knows when any of us will work again. And it's funny because mm -hmm. don't you call this like the working drummer podcast? I, I, I do. I do. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we're not working right now. There's no. Nothing, nobody's working a lot of my friends and a lot of people we we know are saying, "Hey, I'm at home. I'm 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 ready to track drums and percussion for you, you know, if you need it." But I yeah. think the the songwriting community or those that that put us to work that maybe aren't songwriters ourselves or whatever, 
I don't, I don't know if there is uh, the spirit. I've reached out to a few friends and say, hey, do you want to do something online? Do you want to pass some tracks around? You know, even just to collaborate and create. And, uh, and some of them are like, yeah, I think so. And it's, it can be a very fickle bunch, but I, th- I think people are finding creative ways to, to create content or continue to play live, uh, you know, through streaming. And, and Look, it's a hard time. I mean, I, I don't know, just this, I'm going to push myself to get together with people creatively when I feel like it's safe to, to gather some people together. Like I have people in this city here that I love playing with. Um, and I have a studio here where we can get together and record, but really like, I just don't feel safe or responsible bringing everybody over to, to use this, this downtime. Yeah. Um, it's this thing for me personally is really like a distraction in a way that like makes multi thus far has made multitasking, uh, like music, making it musically beneficial has been a, the, the, the fact of what we're all sitting indoors for is such a distraction that I almost can't make it as beneficial as I hope at this point. I mean, it's like a whole other drill trying to figure out how to, you know, I could say all I want. Oh, this is a positive time that we can like regroup and get our shit together, yeah, and all that. But at the same time, if I'm going to sit down and do anything in the back of my mind, it's just going like, you know, it's one thing to multitask through a schedule of a bunch of stuff that you're doing or a bunch of emails to catch up on, or a bunch of communication. But to multitask with a this pandemic virus that nobody really knows everything about or anything about mm-hmm. is it's a it's a it's a weird distraction, man. You know, it's sort of like you can't meditate and, <laughs> you know, I mean, you could meditate and play a drum solo, I guess. I don't know. Hopefully you're in that state when you do so. But you know what I mean? <laughs> it's just hard. To, it's a hard thing to multitask. Like it to, is to do what's happening here. And, you know, I mean, the, the main thing is just to start, you know, just to to start, sit down, anything, pick up a stick, clean up your house, do nothing, sit on the couch, play Scrabble, whatever, Yahtzee, who knows, just, just stay away from public, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, and this could end tomorrow. They could tell us tomorrow, not that I rely on everything they as the media or the government <laughs> or anybody would say, but I'm just yeah. saying like reliable sources could say tomorrow, Hey, we're back to business. We figured this out. Thanks for uh, keeping it down low while we, worked on it and we're good to go back to normal yeah i mean that day can't come soon enough but at this point and if i sound a little freaked out it's because it is we don't know when this will end there's a mindset that that a lot of us have when we're trying to when we're self-employed and we're working and we're trying to hustle and go from gig to gig and and figure out what the next six months look like what the next month looks like and yeah. I think there's things in our life that get neglected, our relationships, um, our, our relationship with people, our relationship with music in general, maybe what inspired us when we were kids. And then as, as, as we get older and we become full-time musicians, then sometimes the passion gets replaced with that... Um, I don't know, entrepreneurial spirit. The necessity that, or Yes, yeah. Yeah, because this is this is this is where we've gone. And and I mean you have a pretty unique story that, that gets you in into music, I think, compared to to a lot of us with your family history. 
But I think this yeah. allows us to the, – the, here's the positive thing that I've discovered. Um, it, my family is spending more time together because yeah. my, my brain is always like, what's the next gig? Um, I was working late. I was working late. The kids were in school during the day. My wife worked. So it's like we miss each other, you know, a lot. Even when I came off the road, we were still on different schedules. And when I sit down to actually spend some time practicing, I'm not thinking about the next gig or what I need to work on for the next gig. I'm thinking, hey, I'm going to work on that left hand thing with the swing pattern that I used to work on when I was 17 years old. And how do I rediscover that? I mean, I think with this as well, like, we tend, you know, we tend to take things for granted as humans. Yeah. And, um, you know, this this turns around and next thing you know, you're going, wow, you know, that that little, you know, cover band gig I do every Friday and Saturday night, you know, I really miss being there, you know, or like, you know, just stuff when you're home. Yeah. But I mean, this has been a, this has been a really odd year for me. Um, How so? Well, first of all. I got engaged to a girl from Oklahoma city like a little while ago. And the reason I came out here was I was touring so much that I felt in all fairness that, you know, if I'm always gone, it's better for her situation that, you know, she can be here with friends, a job, like, you know, people, whatever. Um, and you know, togetherness is a funny thing. Like I think not, not to make this a relationship discussion, but her and I have gone through some, interesting realities together you know like uh i was scheduled to go out with lindsey buckingham and then he had a heart attack thank god he was okay but the whole tour got canceled and uh this is no reflection on lindsey or anything but i mean if you can't pick up the pieces and find something else when tours get canceled you know at a certain length of time out or or even short notice there are times where you don't get any you know monetary compensation for it and that really set me back this year, not about the money, just but like, you know, while we all expected to go do that, you know, thank God he's alive and well. Yeah, yeah. You know, okay, I'm going to get through this. I was going back and forth to L.A. and taking every job I could, taking sessions, whatever, and it was all working. Um, you know, and then it's been a, a slow time. So, I mean, we're we've been spending more time together as a couple. And then finally, it looks like, you know, things are going to flow again, which they are flowing. Don't get me wrong. Like, uh, but things are postponed, you know, like now suddenly we're up against um, this situation. It puts not just one of you out of work, but it puts the whole household, you know, the two of us puts us both out of work. And it's only you could say, well, it's only been a couple of days, man. Like, how bad is it? Right. But when, but when they're projecting things that are going to be like a month or three months or whatever, I mean, this is like a real eye opener, I think, to the realities of being a musician. And I don't want to be a downer, you know, but when you see like household name people that you've always looked up to and loved, like having like crowdfunders and stuff when they get sick or when they, you know, they're no longer able to work, it's because the reality is like this is for the most part, for most people who don't have something to, to lean back on, whether it be a business or some old money or whatever, I mean, this is a really fragile lifestyle. And this is a reminder of, um, you know, how hard it is when the work goes away. And it's and, and, and the fact that the work is hard enough to get as it is, 
you know, at least you know when you can go out and work. This is a testament, I guess you would say, to how much hope we all have as musicians that there will be another gig. Like, ah, oh, you know, I'm going to keep going. Like, it's, you know, but but right now there is nothing. And, and like I'm saying, I know it's only a few days in, but I just know that this is going to be, if it's a few months of not being able to go out and work and stuff, it's going to be really devastating for people that are out there uh, doing it, you know, like it. I don't even know how to put this, man, but like you have to be driven to do this for a living. You know, the people that are so driven to go like, man, it's three weeks into the month. Like I just, but I have faith it's going to work out. And then the phone rings and it's like, Hey, can you come in and do this eight song session? And it's going to pay $4,000. And you're like, there it is. I made it through the month again, you know, call it faith in God, call it faith in the universe, whatever. Mm-hmm. But like right now, it doesn't matter what you do, man. If you're a drummer, you could be a, a somebody that delivers mail. I mean, like you're being told to stay home, and it's you know if I, for one, being a workaholic, uh, it's it's freaking me out. But I mean, dude, just as we're sitting here talking, like my buddy Justin, who I play with in the Dixie Chicks, like he's just texting me going, "Yo, do you still have that studio up and running?" So I mean, you know, people are. You know, two days from now, I may feel like, wow, you know what's the funniest thing is I had more fun doing sessions during the coronavirus <laughs> outbreak than ever. But like at this moment, I mean, I'm still trying to get my footing, man. I'd be lying if I if I said I wasn't, you know, a bit freaked out here. Mm-hmm. I, I encourage my listeners to go to check out In the Pocket podcast with David Wasikinen, uh the drummer from the Hooters. Uh, oh, yeah, Dave. Yeah, man, he's that was awesome. I mean, I was kind of tripping because he's such an idol to me. I mean, from where I'm from in New Jersey, mm-hmm. like those, I mean, those guys, I mean, globally, they're a great, you know, well-known band. But to me, I mean, I don't know. But yeah, what you're saying about it, go on. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. I, I I like to listen to other interviews that my guests have done. You were on episode 61, and it covers... You guys get into a, a lot of personal stories and, and the Philly scene and things, some of that stuff like yeah. that. So it's it's really good. You, you, you've left some room, uh, uh, thankfully, for us to to talk. And um, so I wanted to ask you about the working with the Dixie Chicks, what they've asked of you maybe what they've not asked of you uh as far as your responsibilities behind the kit i'll tell you it all started i was playing with stevie nicks and i did that gig forever like 12 years and right? like yeah yeah 12 years and there was you know with stevie there was always a lot of lulls like a lot of breaks where she'd go back to fleetwood mac or whatever and um you know, that's what enabled me to like on breaks, like go out and play with Adina Menzel or go out and play with Philip Sace or Philip may have come after that. But I mean, whatever, there was always opportunities to go out and play with other people because you'd have these big breaks in your schedule. So on the Stevie tour tours, uh, (laughs) a friend of mine, her name is Mindy. She works with she wasn't the tour manager with Stevie, but she was on the staff and I carry a lot of fishing gear on the road um, because I like to go fishing. And 
one day she was like, Hey Jimmy, you know, I noticed you have like a bunch of fishing gear in the truck. If you ever need somebody to go, I like to fish. Da, 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 da. So we started hanging out, you know, fishing together, Mindy and I. Yeah. And this all connects. And I didn't know anything about Mindy. I didn't realize that, you know, she was the tour manager for the Dixie Chicks. I didn't, I didn't know anything about any of that. I just knew she worked with us and she was cool. And we started talking one time and she was saying, you know, yeah, you know, Dixie Chicks, this, I go, wow, you know, that's interesting. And, um, time goes by and I'm home and like, there's nothing going on in LA. I was playing like with Johnny Rivers or something. Stevie was on a break. Johnny Rivers was a nightmare whatever and the phone <laughs> rings and it's mindy and she goes hey you know uh natalie mains and ben harper have a project and they need a drummer wow could you do it would you come check it out now uh ben's whole band the relentless seven were the backing band on the album and they were to do the tour they had this great drummer named Jordan Richardson, who I always say is like one of the best drummers a lot of us have never heard. But And for whatever reason, he had quit. And um, they had another guy. I don't know what went on there. But Mindy said to them, hey, I know this. I know. Oh, no, they didn't have another guy. Mindy's like, I know a guy that could come in and do it. And... Ben's guitar player, Jason, was in the band at the time. And when she told him it was me, he was like, oh, my God. He's like, you know, we were. He goes, I was telling the guys in Ben's band about him because he saw me on a Palladia thing with Stevie Nicks, you know. Mm -hmm. So everybody was excited. I was excited. I didn't want to, like, not, like, uh, get this going because to me it was like a step into is not to say that like, you know, I work with old people or something like that, but I just mean like, you know, I had been through the school of Wadi Wachtel and that whole thing was Stevie Nicks. And I like got some serious skills from like the tutelage, or would you say of Wadi, yeah, like the yeah. ball breaking of Wadi, the, the direction <laughs> of Wadi, sure. you know, when you got it right with Wadi, you could take that groove anywhere and people are going to bank on it. And it was like, but now like I'm going to go in and play with somebody else, you know? So I got crazy and I learned those songs from Natalie's solo album, note for note. I mean, it's one you know, it's one thing to learn it note for note, but like I was like, I'm gonna get this so there's not gonna be any question of what I'm playing. If they want me to go outside of the box, I can. If they want me to stay within the the confines of the parts as recorded, I got that too. Mm -hmm. That's right here. And then I got nutty about like the drum tuning and bringing drums that sounded exactly like the record. Like, wow, what's the pitch of the toms on the record? Yeah, I remember. I remember getting the like Ben Harper's studio, and the Ben's assistant at the time was like, "Yeah, well, there's a whole set of drums right here. It's <laughs> like this this blue set of C and Cs that got me interested in C and C okay, again, actually, yeah. and." uh and I hit them and I go, wow, these are really cool. I go, but you know, man, I got my drums with me. Do you mind if we just move these and put mine up? Because I know, you know, they sound just like the record. And uh, I'll never forget, man, when those, I had just come back from Japan on this huge, you know, tour with this guy, Yazawa. And now I'm into this and it's like, what's this going to be like? Like, I don't even know what this is going to be like. Do they want me to play with a click? Do they not? 
And I just had all my shit together and they came in and we all sat down and played and everybody seemed real pleased. And Natalie is um, very much like a perfectionist. Like she hears everybody's part. You leave something out, you put something extra in. It could be the, the minutia of, you know, the splitting the hairs of the minutia. She hears it. Yeah. And it's not, it's never, ever in an annoying way. It's never like, you know, makes you feel like, like you're, you know, like you're being chained and like, it's always like, oh yeah, you know, you're right. No, that needs to be in there. Oh, Ooh. okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so she's like really amazing. And, um, I guess, and this is all going towards like, you know, answering what you asked, yeah. uh, uh, you know, it came about very organically in the beginning to be there. The, the whole like arrival at being asked to do the gig came up organically. And then from there, you know, I just dove in so that I could go in there and play the music flawlessly. And I think it set that standard with her and that camp um, that they could rely on me. Like there was a reliability factor. He's going to show up. It's going to sound right. He's going to know what's up. Your work ethic came through on top of already what you brought as a, as a drummer, your skills as a drummer. Yeah. And the ability to get along with everybody in that room to kind of have a, you know, see eye to eye, really see eye to eye on so much stuff to have the similar sense of humor with everyone there. <laughs> and like this sort of fragile, like sensitivity, like all of us are really loving people, but all of us are all, also probably at some point in life, I can't speak for her or anybody else, but I mean like some of us have put up with a lot of shit or whatever. You know? <laughs> so there's this kind of humility going around and it's good. And, during that first week, you know, Ben asked me to be in his band, which, nice. you know, but that was going to be like down the road, like we'd need you to start a month from now. Um, so, I mean, eventually the Dixie Chicks were out doing some gigs because remember, everything I'm telling you about here is from Natalie's solo band. Um, and if anybody here listening wants to check out a great video of that band, look up uh, Natalie Maines, Ben Harper, David Letterman. Um, it's killer performance. And, okay. You know, uh, but eventually Ben was getting the innocent criminals back together. Uh, there was another drummer playing in the Dixie Chicks for a while, uh, but they weren't really touring that hardcore. And then they decided to really put together like a big tour and, uh, you know, Mindy reached out to me and, you know, I'd stay in touch with Natalie. So it's like, you know, it was kind of out there in the universe. Like, hey, the Dixie Chicks are going to do a reunion tour. We'd like you to do it if you're into it. Yeah. And Natalie was like, well, I already know you're right for it. But, um, you know, like, uh, they just want to hear you. And I guess... You know, Marty didn't come to that, but it was just me and the bass player, Glenn, and um, Natalie. I think it was just, that was it. It was me, Natalie, Glenn, oh, and, and uh, Emily. Okay. And we got together at Mates, and we rehearsed, not rehearsed, we just ran through like three Dixie Chicks tunes, and then it was on from there, you know? Yeah. So I know it's a long fucking answer, but <laughs> that's uh, we have we have the podcast, man. This long yeah. form discussion, it's good, it's perfect for and, these. And things. also, man, I mean, like you know, when you ask like what was expected, I mean, yeah. you know, your heart's got to be in it. 
So I don't know if you saw the 2016-17 footage, but, um, you know, there was like a, a lot of getting it together. You know, the drums, all the guitars, the drums, even the cymbals were white. You know, yeah, they wanted, it's badass. And it, at, at one point they wanted it to switch from black to white in the middle of the show, which would have entailed flipping gear. But that was an early discussion, you know. But I mean, like, just... It, so many hands-on aspects to that gig, man, like from getting your gear together to to figuring out how to make it sound right, to just the right feel. You know, a lot of things get simplified live. A lot of things get a little reworked. A lot of things are just like the record, you know. So, I mean, you know, it's just a matter of just staying on your toes and keeping that shit together and, and showing up prepared. You know what I mean? I'm, I, I make these checklists like, Okay, like 10 times right now, I'm going to play the song with the track and the click. I mean, I'm sorry, the track and the chart. Yeah. And it's like, okay, now after I get through those 10 times, I'm going to play it 10 times with just the click and the chart without, uh, you know, without the track at all. And then I'll try to play it, you know, 10 times without, uh, without the uh, chart and just the click singing it in my head. Yeah. And I'm literally checking off boxes, you know, to make sure I do it 10 times. And I'll try to drill that like on each song. Like, you know, I don't know, man, get it up to like 100 times on each or something. Wow. If you got the time to do that. Yeah. Just I mean, I was I, I I've I've had gigs where I've calculated how much time I had to learn the amount of songs and how many <laughs> hours I have to put in the day. Right. Like, right. To the point of like calculating how long of a walk is it? from my rehearsal room, you know, down to the bathroom, what am I going to do to like save an hour, like bring food, whatever, bring drinks. Um, because if you really look at your schedule, like you don't always have all the time in the world to work out 30 tunes, you know? So you got to find a way to do it, man. Cause when you, once you show up, the more you've drilled it, the less you have to think when you're there, which, you know, should be your goal. You know what I mean? And a lot of people are like, well, why Why does it cost so much to, to track this song? Think of the hours, you know, or why does it cost this much for you guys to play a 45-minute set? You know, like, and you think of just the hours that we put in shedding and, and you know, honing our craft. It's like that's, we didn't get paid to do that, you know, the preparation. Uh, but also you remind me of um, a conversation I have, I don't know if you know Steve Gould, uh, in his practicing and how he would do the, yeah. the he, he worked with Sarah Borales for for a while, but where right, he, yeah we did a thing together and I think I did a, I think he and I did something together in Minnesota I forget but yeah yeah go on I, I know Sarah pretty well too awesome way before it, it just just the just that practice routine and and getting it in your head and just kind of like whittling it down to its bare essence. I think is really good, especially for a lot of the for those of us that use charts and think, okay, it's charted. I'm going to run it down. The chart looks good. Next, you know, there's yeah. sometimes I mean, when I, when yeah. that's good, that's fine. Uh, but depending on the situation and the artist and what you want to do with your career, uh, it's sometimes important to go way beyond that because I think if you show up for an audition or a gig, or if you're, you know, starting to make an impression with somebody and you walk in without charts and you just fucking nail it, they're going to be like, whoa, this guy's serious. He cares about me. He cares about my music. Yeah. You know, dude, I've, I've, I've thought that process out in my head so heavily that like what I'll do is I'll make the charts 
if I can go without them, I go without them. Not not go without them as in don't bring them. I mean, I won't use them. Um, but I'll always have them like, you know, close by. And then if I have like my iPad, which I tend to wait on until like everything's set in stone before I put anything in there. <laughs> um, you know, I'll have that there. And like when I go on tour, even if I don't, even if I don't need the, the chart playing it live, I'll still have notes on the iPad in case I have a brain fart. You know what I sure, mean? Sure, sure. Um, and, but when you start from the practice, like for instance, and I always use this as an example, there's a Stevie Nicks song called um, Outside the Rain. Okay. And for whatever reason, like a couple bars in, there's like two or three bars where Russ Kunkel does not play any bass drum. And yeah, you know, it, yeah. ma- it made me wonder, like, did he not play the bass drum because he was messing with the pedal? Was it at the suggestion of somebody else? Did he just space and his foot didn't move? Or, you know, could he have said, well, I should have played a different figure there, but I just left it empty and let's do it again. And they went, no, no, that's cool. You know, but whatever it is, like finding those holes and those things that were left out are often, to me, the reason they may have picked that take, you know. And then you have somebody like Stevie go, wow, it's good to play this song again. It's never felt right. And now it does. And then I'm sitting there going to myself, well, I wonder if it's because I left that bass drum out in those couple of bars, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. maybe that's that familiar feeling that, that, that quirk in the take, you know, and it's the same with the chicks. Like, um, you know, they had this great drummer. I, I love that you say, I lo- I'm sorry. I love that you say the chicks. It's not derogatory at all. You mean the Dixie chicks. It's just short. Oh yes. The, exactly. <laughs> hey the man, Dixie these chicks, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, like, yeah, right. And I don't really call them the chicks, but that's kind of funny. <laughs> but they had a, they had a great drummer that I really love and respect, a guy named Fred Eltringham. Yeah, he's been on and uh, early on. Yeah, and Fred's super cool. And like, yeah. mm-hmm. I remember talking to Fred when I was getting ready to go on the tour. And then there's this guy, man. I cannot remember his last name. John, John Gardner. Oh yeah. So I called. I called. I remember calling Fred and I had been studying John Gardner's stuff like pretty hardcore. Sure. Um, and I called Fred and like, I was like, Fred, you know, some of this stuff, like, did you go up on stage without charts? And he goes, well, he goes, I did. He goes, but there's some stuff that I kept notes on from the beginning to like, to the last gig. And we were like on the same page. Exactly. Yeah. And it was, you know, a lot of, and he said, I just referenced everything John Gardner did. And I go, Oh, well, cool. Cause I'm doing the same thing. John Gardner reminds me a lot of, um, uh, this drummer from English, uh, Scottish guy who lives in England uh, named Jeff Dugmore. Jeff plays with Yazawa, who I also play with. And it's like, some of these guys have these great, this great ability to like do setups and, and like do little, oh, it's almost like how big band drummers used to set up a figure, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. or how they do not used to, but I mean, <laughs> when that, it was just not, I guess it's just not as much of a focus anymore. And it's almost like formulated, you know, like Mickey Curry is probably like my biggest commercial rock influence, you know, yeah. for feel and that R and B sensibility. He has a similar thing as well, but like a guy like, John Gardner, if, you, if if he was on the gig and now you're going to go do it, all you got to do is like really listen hardcore to where he's at, 
you know. Mm. And then, then, then apply your approach to that. Like maybe I play bigger drums or maybe I play with a different feel or I don't know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm just the guy who's there now, you know. Uh, but the spirit of uh, what John yeah, brought. Yes. The, the orchestration of it, you know, the way he laid out the parts, like where he might have not played a bass drum or how he turned something around, similar to like what I was saying about Russ Tuckle. It's like, these little formulas, this this bit of work that was done before you got there, you know, matters, you know. And then, like, yeah, I don't know, we're doing, um, there's one Dixie Chicks tune on the live album where uh, I, I play some accent against their vocal line, you know, and that was never on any recording and anything like that. But I'm sure somebody out there that's playing the Dixie, that same tune, listening to a live version probably you know plays that accent now mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you know that that stuff comes in slowly but i mean i don't know where john got it from man because he, he really you know had the structure of those songs like really together i, so I, I kind of relied on him yeah i know i mean i know of john uh i know he he's on my list to to talk to it's it's easy to for me to go down the nashville list and and pull from the talent here but um, we also, you know Greg Morrow? Oh, of course. Yeah, and he's been on as well. He's been an idol of mine since I moved here, man. And so I mean, he's another one, dude. I mean, like his oh, stuff on yeah. Dixie Chicks. There was a there's one song that he's on. I forget the title, but I could probably tell you. <laughs> you, you could tell. Uh, yeah, I th- you could tell that um, that the band was just like taking it because there's some shit in there that's like. You're not just gonna, you know, it, it. It's the spontaneity that happens. You know what I mean? So he's so much that man. He springs. I mean, if you were so sitting in a room, yeah, if you were sitting in a room like he was with everybody live and putting that together, yeah, then maybe you'd have to go back and relearn some hip shit that you played. But it's interesting when you're hearing that hip shit as the parts, and it's like you can tell, like, man, oh, that's gonna be tricky. And then, like, I'll just sit there and drill that one bar. You know <laughs> what I mean? Oh, I've, yes, of course. Pro Tools helps with that because you can dump the, you know, you can dump the recording in there and cut out one bar and just loop it and well, play and it over and over. Logic Pro too. I, I I've done that with a few songs where you can do uh, I can't remember what it's called, but you can slow it down without changing the pitch. You know, it does all these yeah, things. Yeah, so time stretch. It, when I've when I've worked out. Uh, maybe a really like intense part, almost like the old Morantz machines, the tape slowdown and stuff like that. And yeah, yeah, it's yeah. been a the good thing. Song starter or whatever. Yeah, no, no. The, uh, the, the, the they had that Tascam was making a yes C, a CD player that you could loop and do all that. I had that thing, man. I tell you, it would eat batteries like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd go on a plane with like a brick of batteries to like learn shit on a flight. But it was invaluable because, I mean, you know, you could take that one bar and cut it down and you could, you know, you could, you could get what you needed. You didn't need to, um, you know, sit there and like constantly start it over. I'll tell you a good tool for that, man. Um, You heard about this, uh, you know, those things called uh, aerodrums or whatever. It's like an air drumming program, like where you sit in front of a camera and you just move your arms around. It sounds like you're playing a drum set. No, I don't know that. That's so. Yeah, they put these like sensors on your shoes, and basically you can air drum. But that that same company is called Arid. Okay. A R E D, and they got like a. I mean, this is another level of practice that I take it to. It's like 
they have a transcription program in there. It's absolutely free. It's got these amazing samples. And like when, when I write a check these days, I do it in that program. Oh, excellent. And they have these killer samples. So you can hit play and hear what you transcribed. And I'm not a great reader, uh-huh. and, you know, but I'm, so for me to like be able to transcribe within this app um, and then hear it back, I can also improve my skills because I can realize what I'm, you know, writing out incorrectly. Like, oh, that's not what I meant there. You know, How did I write? Oh, the dot goes there. You know what I mean? So does it, is it almost like a MIDI controller where you play and then it, it transcribes what you're playing? Uh, you can drag the mouse and just pull the um, notation up onto the staff. Yeah. Or I got one of those little micro keyboards, a tiny little thing. Yeah. And uh, you can plug that in via USB and, you know, you just figure out which keys are which. I put little pieces of tape on it so it just says, oh, the C is the hi-hat, you know, the D is the kick drum, whatever. And then you can play to a click on there and it'll put it all up on the staff. Uh-huh. And then you can copy the bars. It's And, dude, their, their format on how to sell this thing is ridiculous. They have like the free version yeah. and the pay version, and they joke about it saying that there's no difference between the two, <laughs> and it's the truth. Oh and they God. work out there. You pay for it. It says, would you like to join at the sandwich price, the sandwich and a beer price? <laughs> it's it's hilarious. You got to go to the site. It's Arid Drums. I am, A-R-E- I am doing It's that. either A-E-R-D or A-R-E-D, but... Um, yeah, easily, easy to but find. Yeah, I guess like... You know, I'm kind of rambling here, which isn't that odd for me, and I'm all <laughs> coffeeed out. But, um, but yeah, the, but what you were saying about the Dixie Chicks, it's like, yeah, you know, you can never get complacent when you're working with people on that level. You know, you have to really challenge yourself. Yourself, you know, there's always something else that you can fine tune. And I would say that the reason my time with Stevie Nicks went so well. Was because twelve years to it, I'm still listening mm. to Edge of Seventeen mm-hmm. and still trying to be yes. like, okay, well, what can I do to make this sit better? Or, you know, I'm still checking out a fill that Mick Fleetwood played that was a happy accident, some backward shit that they just kept, <laughs> you know, and like honing it in, and and it pays to have those notes with you in some kind of, you know, like you should have a book, you should have like I always feel like if somebody says to me. How did that part go? You know, are you sure you're doing that? What goes on right there? And if I can go, well, you know, on your record, it goes just like this. I checked out a live version from 1979 where you guys played it a little faster and there was a fill Mm -hmm. at the top that went like this, you know, but then there's another version like, you know, it's all out there and like, but you got to have knowledge on people aren't hiring you to just take a whack at their music and just you know get in and out they want to know that you know you you really have to take a deeper interest in in their music than imaginable i mean i you, you hope that everybody has that deep of an interest in their own music as well but i mean like you kind of need to look you know beyond uh to what's given to you you know what i mean I, I do and i think that there's also an approach a sensitivity to to like helping facilitate a rehearsal or a show in a way that, you know, like what you're saying is like you're showing like I'm invested in you. I can help this music 
you know, move this along, move this rehearsal along without being condescending. You know, like, guys, we're doing it the wrong tempo. Listen on this, you know, this recording, we did it this way. You know, you're like, yeah, hey, you if this helps, I want to know. And and then I think the, the those around you, the artist, the band leader, whoever says, oh, cool, he knows, good, I don't have to worry about it. It's like, you got this right. You're the drummer. You've got tempos. You know this lick that we do. Um, maybe the bass player uh, doesn't remember, and you could be like, "Hey, man, um, you know, on this, we're, you you want to try and catch this thing with me?" You know, and they're like, "Oh, yeah, that would be cool." It's like that's how it is, and you know, whatever, yeah. and not like, "Hey, man, you're fucking this up." It's not that, you know. It, it's it's bringing that to the table, and then this trust that is established, and that relationship becomes tighter. Yeah, I mean, it, and you'll know if you. You know, you tend to know who you're working with mm-hmm. and like what kind of people they are. I mean, geez, we've all been in situations where it's like it doesn't matter how diplomatic I am, or how cool <laughs> I am, or how correct or incorrect I play this music. This person is just not approachable. Yeah, they have. There's a reason I'm the 500th drummer to be in here. In the oh past yeah. 20 oh years. yeah. Yeah. You know, and you know, like my buddy Mike always says, like that the there's three elements to to music. You know, when you're on a job, it's like there's the the music element which is the music itself there's the hang which is like you know the social interaction with the others in the room and then there's like the compensation the pay and it's like if two of those three things are together you know you can hang like if the music's great and the hang is great you might put up with some shitty money you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if if the if the money's great and the hang is great but the music sucks you know you might hang in there and do that too you know but you have to have like two of those three things together for anything to work. Cause if two of the things suck, you know, if it's like, well, the music's great, but the hang is awful and the money's awful. Yeah. It doesn't matter how great that music is. You're not going to want to be in that room. No. So I, you know, I strive to get into these situations where like all three elements are totally there. And fortunately, like, you know, I, I really feel those elements on, on gigs like if you play like with stevie nicks he's there for 12 years i mean like there has to be a lot to it that makes you want to not you know you're not dreading your job mm-hmm. um and people that come in and they get like too loud and they start no no that's not how it goes like what you're saying like you mm-hmm. don't want to be that way yeah i mean it's so true man it disrupts everything and, and nobody wants to deal with it can you tell me the lessons and some of the some of the like really profound things that you picked up from Wadi that you carry with you now? Uh, yeah. Or any cool stories about him busting your balls? <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, well, early on, you know, I had kind of gotten wrecked over it you know i was not not like a mess but i mean i just internally was like whoa like you know i i learned on my own i figured it out that often the reason you're hired is you know either because you can come right in and slay it or because they know you're going to slay it given the direction like you're somebody that's what's the word valuable is that the word like you're able to be formed shaped you know and I used to take it personally when Wadi would say to pick up a tempo or slow it down, you know, but I came to a point where I realized he's just really adjusting the tempo for how he feels about the song in the moment. And even with a click track, he will tell you to pick it up and slow it down. 
And I've seen him do this with so many great drummers that I love and respect that I started to not take it personally, mm -hmm. which I never got offensive, defensive about it. But I mean, I questioned myself something fierce. Um, I remember I was checking out some stuff with that drummer, Billy Ward, like his, he had a cool instructional video and I met him somewhere and we talked or something. I gave me his number. I called him up and asked him, you know, and he's like, well, he's like, when that happens, man, why don't you just start by saying like, you know, sorry. So if somebody's, oh yeah, sorry, well, let's put it. Okay. So, you know, just get things back in the flow of moving forward again, mm. rather than being like, what do you mean? You know, I would never be like, what do you mean? But, yeah. Um, yeah. Wadi taught me things like, you know, approach every performance. This includes like at the rehearsal. You're there rehearsing, right? It's one thing if you go, let's just run through it quietly. You know, but if you're there rehearsing and it's like, we're getting ready to go do a show. He, he'd tell you, sound check, rehearsal, give me show volume. You know, oh, wow. play like we're at the gig. Yeah. You know, and that helps everybody because then the monitor mix is straight, you know. Right. The intensity is there. You're not going to feel like your arms are going to fall off because now all of a sudden you're playing it the way you would have. Uh, you know, Wadi one time told me, I, I got lost in these lyrics Stevie was singing and I, I was going through some emotional shit. And, um, I don't know, something about what she said hit home. And like, I guess I kind of drifted a little bit for a second. And I see Wadi standing in front of the riser and he's like, hey, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and, you know, there's, it's in an arena and he's standing in front of me. I go, oh man, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, Baxter, come here. After the show, I go, yeah. Yeah, yeah, why? He goes, what happened? I go, man, something Stevie sang just hit home. And I don't know, man, I just got a little bit oh, too emotionally latched, you know, to it. And he goes, yeah, well, I turned around and I felt it. And I saw you looking at your feet. He goes, you know what I call that? Been caught grooving. <laughs> Which was kind of funny, right? And then I, I, he goes, don't groove, man. It's a misconception. It's not your job to groove. He goes, that's not the, that's not job one. I go, okay. And he goes, it's your job to generate, man. Huh. That comes first. And when you generate, then the groove happens. Because, you know, you're generating, you know, he goes, you know, that's your job is to generate the energy. And as a result of that, the groove will happen from there. I mean, Waddy's just, he's just Waddy. You know what I mean? What are you playing? What is that? Don't do that. I mean, I remember like one time playing a lick from the record that I hadn't done in rehearsal. I was listening to it and I went up there and played it. the song called Fall From Grace and um, Vinnie Colaguda played on the track. And like, I played the lick and I, I look and like, here's Carlos Rios and Al, the bass player. Everybody turns around and looks at me like, fuck yeah, you know? And Wadi's looking at me like, what the fuck did you just do? <laughs> and I go backstage after that show and he goes, Pax, come here. I go, what is it? He goes, um, what the fuck did you play in? fall from grace and i go it's that lick from the record you know all this time i i never realized that in the tag that Vinny plays this big lick and he goes yeah i i hate that part i don't have nothing to do with that and that's you know i never like that when he does that so don't ever do that I go, yeah okay cool you know what i mean but i mean that that kind of thing like Waddy's listening like i used to when they play landslide there was no drums you're right and um i watch him play it with stevie and I keep like an Alesis SR-16 next to me for click reference or whatever. And I started tapping the, the tap tempo button 
to see where he was at, you know, just to, now he can't hear it because he doesn't get any click. He doesn't wear in ears. And he's up there playing solo with Stevie. I tap in the tempo and I hit play on that click track and I can hear it in my ears only. Mm-hmm. And his time don't move, man. That's crazy. He just stays in time. You know, Lenny Castro is like that too. Like, you know, Lenny's, Lenny's like, to me, the perfect guy to play with. I mean, it's just like all another level. So, I mean, between, between Waddy and Lenny, like, you know, that gig was definitely like a major education. And, and Lenny, like, you know, one time said to me, like, did I ever tell you how to play or what to do? And I go, no. And he goes, oh, if I feel lessons to you, you're fine. You know? And, uh, but yeah, Waddy's like, um, I don't know, man. He would say all kinds of shit, you know? You could t- and Stevie too, like if you even touch the snare drum to him, like a, you could breathe on a lug and she'd hear the difference in the pitch, you know? Those things are so good, man, to have people like that around you. Uh, th- there's a, a singer recently I started working with a couple years ago and it, man, if he, he would turn around if I just did something different or I was like, man, you, like you hear everything. He's like, I do hear everything. Like he feels it, and he's not a drummer, but he's just—he's just one of those people that he's one of the people right now that I worry about in this situation because his skill set is music. You know, he's just—he's yeah. very hardwired that way. He does doesn't have too many other skills. <laughs> yeah, I mean, dude, you know, people that hear like that, you know, they're very important. I mean, Joe Sample at one point. Uh, you know, he wanted things on st- things on stage with Joe had to be fairly quiet. I mean, it was a brush gig most of the time, and I'll never forget he wanted things quiet. You know, and like even you, you got to wear dress shoes. Your heel hitting the back of the hi hat will make too much noise wow. when you're playing. Like mm-hmm. the Berlin Opera House is, you know, places like that. Like, you know, side note, we were playing the Berlin Opera House. Uh, I didn't even realize where we were playing. You know what I mean? <laughs> like we're playing all these like crazy historic opera houses and halls. And I'm just like, you know, playing the drums, but I'll never forget. Like one time he goes, Jimmy, now, now Jimmy, I need you to come over here to my piano. <laughs> so I said, okay, you know, so I sit down on the bench next to me, Jimmy. You know, I loved Joe. <laughs> Believe me, Joe sample was my favorite motherfucker ever. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, now Jimmy, this is the volume of my piano. And he'd play. Now, here it is loud. Here it is soft. Now, you see the distance between you and I. When I say play quiet, you need to play loud enough so that at least I can hear you over my my, my piano. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, And then he would hear everything you're doing. Jimmy, why are you pressing so hard? How hard are you pressing your foot on that sock cymbal? Man, loosen up your foot. It sounds like you're pressing too hard, you know, (laughs) and all this shit went down. He got it all out of the way, like in one day. Yeah. No, no. I was looking at him during the rehearsal. (laughs) He stops. He goes, now, Jimmy, don't be looking at me like, Joe, am I playing the right shit? (laughs) I need you to look at me like, come on, Joe. You old motherfucker, give it to me. <laughs> now let's do it again, you know. And it was fine after that, like right. you know. But he right. had a way of. And Wadi is the same. Like yeah. Wadi's like, what? What the fuck are you playing? You know, what the fuck is that? <laughs> you know, like 
you know, he'll do that. Not just to me. He'll do that to anybody. And it gets there. You know, I remember a keyboard player came in that was going to maybe do the gig. And I'm sitting there quietly behind the drums. We're in Sony. It's in this big, you know, soundstage. And we're rehearsing. And um, they were kind of like between players. And this guy, like, looks at me like, count the song off, man. Let's go. Tell him let's go. I go, I look at the dude. I go, I don't do anything until he, and I point at Wadi, he says go. Yeah. And he goes, oh, come on, man. We're just sitting in here wasting time. Let's play the song. I go, no, you don't understand. I don't do anything. <laughs> because that's how it works. Like with Wadi, he comes over, stands in front of the drums. He'll be tapping his foot, finger on his chin. And he'll just be feeling something in the universe or in the room, like that this is the time to start the song. And he'll look at you and he'll go, go. And that's when you count it in. Not before that, not after that, not lean on the mic. Hey, guys, shouldn't we get this rehearsal moving? No, you don't go until this motherfucker yeah. says go. Oh, and he has this thing he does as well. When he wants to talk to Stevie, like this I've always admired about him, is that he'll walk over to her and he'll talk in her ear and her mic's like right in front of her mm -hmm. and he'll start playing like so they can have a conversation and nobody can hear it he'll start playing like uh you know some fucking acdc off a of power ridge or something or like a, <laughs> a stone's lick or something you know what I mean? so like you can't hear what they're saying <laughs> so he's a special guy i mean you learn about leadership from people like him from people like you know joe sample you know what i mean I feel like those situations you really have to there's a there's a sense of, there's a level of maturity that you kind of have to be a space you need to be in in your life to really let that stuff be a teaching moment because there can be a time maybe uh, young in life where you have some insecurities where you're like man why is this guy yelling at me but like those can be really valuable lessons and teaching moments and um just fun as hell too uh, i i miss those yeah, kinds of people opportunities for growth my father used to take me around to his gigs when i was a kid yeah i mean it could have been him playing with a big band at a college or something where he was like featured or it could have been like him playing with billy Eckstein. anything it could just been him at the pit in atlantic city when he had like a the longest run ever of a theater gig there, whatever it was, I was always with him. And I don't know at what age or at what point or why, maybe it came natural. I don't know, but he really taught me to like be there with him and be invisible and just observe, you know, this, this skill of observation. And he might tell me like, you know, Hey man, sit here, you know, and I'd sit down and I'd watch the gig, you know, I'd watch him play from the stage or, you know, Whatever, but it never like interfered with what was going on in the room around us. Mm -hmm. It was never like this is my pain in the ass kid, or he had to stop or tell me to chill out or whatever. So, I mean, I think being exposed to music from that point of view, where you know, Jim, you're here with me. This isn't about you. Naturally, he would never say that. He never had to say that. But my dad seemed to take me around to places that you had to conduct yourself a certain way because legitimately you were too young to be there. That might've been his gig. As crazy as it sounds, it might've been a pool hall. You know, it might've been a fishing pier anywhere. It was like, I don't know, my, like where I grew up fishing on this pier, you weren't allowed to go out to the end of the pier until you were like 16. You had to fish at the halfway point if you were under 16. 
Hmm. Well, for whatever reason, I was mature enough that the they made an exception and I was allowed to be out at the end wow. if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't want to do that because I felt bad for other people. You know what I mean? I didn't want to be in this privileged position. But somehow my father had an ability to, like, you know, seriously, if he'd take me to a pool hall, man, you know, I was really into shooting pool. Well, you know, a kid, a 12-year-old kid in a pool hall would be looked at like no kids allowed. But somehow I just knew how to hang or he'd dress me the right way. Same with his gigs or a union meeting or whatever. I mean, I was constantly at his side in in adult situations that I think really helped me as an adult when I go into work as a drummer. Mm-hmm. Because I still go in like I'm there you know, with somebody else. But when it comes down to it, I'm the one who has to sit down and play. It's a really interesting balance because, you know, my my kids have gone with me to different situations and and they see sometimes, I don't know what the right word is, but kind of this lack of decorum, this looseness. We're there to work. We're there to get the job done. I mean, this is what we do, but it's not like going into the office you know, at, at another job where, you know, it's like that you don't say certain things, you don't use foul language, you know, there's a communication right. setting that seems like it's not refined, it's not mature, but it it's very much a grown up situation. And there's just a there's this looseness, which I so enjoy. Uh, and, and it's so, uh, I don't know so much what I appreciate. Well, can you tell us about your parents, your your dad and your mom, who were both musicians yeah. and accomplished musicians, and give us uh, some back some background on that and and how that shaped who you've become. Right on. Well, um, yeah, my mother. I mean, my mother has been playing piano her whole life. Uh, my great grandmother used to pay for her piano lessons. You know, there's stories of my mom when she was like, I don't know, she might've even been pre-teens, like or early teens where she went down and, you know, Wayne Shorter was playing and, um, she went to a jazz club in Philly and introduced herself as a kid and got him to come over to her house and hear her play piano and give her some direction uh, I remember her telling me that her and her friend Phyllis like got together and made an oil painting of Cannonball Adderley. Jeez. And I talked, took it down to a club and, and gave it to him. You know, and these are like young people, you know, like kids. Um, she was in the all city band in Philadelphia. Stanley Clark was also in that band. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking like when they're 12 years old. Um, my mom then went on to, get a scholarship to Berkeley. I think she was the first woman to receive a scholarship to play jazz. Um, she went off there to, uh, to college and eventually, I mean, her parents, I, I, the story I heard was that her parents got freaked out because she was studying the Kabbalah or something. You know, my mom's a, a Jewish woman and whatever. I mean, she's, my mom is probably, checked out more religions than most, but I mean, whatever, they got freaked out and they brought her back to Philly. Mm -hmm. And then she ended up going to school there at the U of Arts, which was then called PMA, Philadelphia Musical Academy, where she met my father. My father was playing drums there. Stanley was also there. You know, they took, they took my mom out of 
out of college for getting into Jewish mysticism. And then they brought her home to Philly. And the worst thing happened for her was uh, she ended up marrying an Italian-Irish Catholic guy, which, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, that, that their parents probably you know, definitely weren't real thrilled, but uh, I'm a product of that. My father was, <clears throat> going back to the beginning for my dad, my dad got into playing drums, mainly influenced by, like, his first earliest influences were, like, Earl Palmer and, like, you know, shit like that. And yeah. he was really into, like, doo-wop music. And my my biological grandfather, who I never met because he died before I was born, he um, worked at the VA hospital, and there was a, a bunch of guys there that were into jazz music and when they heard that my father was playing drums, they said, oh Charlie, take these records and give them to your son and they were like you know, they were Miles Davis, John Coltrane all that stuff and that's where my father heard, you know, Tony Williams that's where he heard, you know, Art Blakey that's where he heard all that stuff and you know, that's where he got his direction into jazz, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's where my dad came from and my father and Stanley were in college. You know, Michael Brecker was in that band in that college for a while. Uh, so they're just like, my parents are just these Philadelphia jazz musicians that totally, like, they, they totally saw playing jazz eye to eye. They totally saw everything else a little bit, whatever. But um, my mother, when I was a kid, like, you know, she got me real into playing, like, improvisationally. Mm-hmm. Um, she also would do shit like uh, play the piano and get me to like almost like mind, like act out what emotion I thought she was trying to convey wow. from the instrument. Um, and I, I felt like that was, you know, a rewarding thing. Uh, you know, as far as like, you know, I remember my dad at one point, my mom, was, I was like eight or nine, and my mom being like, well, we don't have a drummer for that gig. Maybe Jimmy can do it. And I was like, yeah, 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 a little kid, you know? And my father going, yeah, well, you better learn how to play like a steady beat first or a straight beat. And I was like, what the hell is a straight beat? <laughs> you know? But like, I, I still remember that moment all these years later, like the first mention in my life of like a straight beat, you know? Because you were playing mostly improvisational, just like your touch and your approach to the drums was just informed by your mom? Well, I would just put on records and, and play to them. My father used to make me listen to like, not make me listen, but he put headphones on me and be like, Tony Williams, the Old Bums Rush, uh, um, Weather Report, you know, any of that stuff was always around, like the Journey Forever. Like, you know, that's what I was playing to. And I wasn't necessarily learning like the drum parts verbatim i was just playing along the record maybe accompanying the record like as if i were a second drummer or something sure um but my mom was out trying to make a living and they were doing gigs that were playing you know whatever was a pop tune at that era like fucking love will keep us together or something <laughs> and to me it was music you know that i didn't understand i didn't understand any of that shit when my friends were listening to kiss records <laughs> i was like Yes, this drummer. What do you mean? This drummer sucks. Listen to this, Tony Williams. This and that. <laughs> you know, listen to Lenny White. What do you mean, Peter Chris? And I mean, I have. It's funny because like I have all this respect for for Kiss and Peter Chris, and you know, Art Singer is a good friend, and like you know, I love that music. I just as a as a young kid, what I got into was this this other approach to drumming, where the drums were like a melodic instrument, and they just right. 
you know, and, um, but my parents, my parents definitely, uh, are into that other thing, you know, like, like my mom's record, Stanley Clark's playing upright bass on it. Ron Bruner's playing drums on it. I mean, it's, you know, my mom still plays this music that's like a mind stretch. My father's playing was the same way. It was just like, you'd go see him and you'd go, I'd run him drums and I'd take the drums home and go, how the fuck did he make that sound like it did last night? You know? Mm. Um, but they're super cool. You know, they're, uh, my father's gone. He passed away. He was a teacher at the U of Arts. Mm-hmm. Um, he taught a lot of people. My mom, she's still in LA and, she teaches a lot of piano. She plays at the House of Blues every every Sunday on the gospel bench. And she writes a lot of music. I mean, you know, this comes up a lot. But, like, the night I was born, apparently she had a gig somewhere in Philly with, like, a late start. Stanley was the bass player on it. And he was driving around, like, trying to borrow an E-string for his bass. And this is, you know, 1970 or whatever. And he's driving around and shows up to the gig and, so where's Sonny? That's my mom, you know, and they were like, she went into labor. She's at the hospital. And he always tells me like, man, just remember, I've known you since the night you were born. <laughs> That's crazy. So, I mean, those having those people around definitely, you know, helped. Like I have a serious mentor and Stanley, like that kind of thing. But it's it's also like, it, it, it also made like, and you know what I mean? There was never like the music has never been like, oh, just have fun with it. You know, music has always been serious in my family. Oh, okay. Yeah, I wonder so about that. Like, because you know, a lot of us grow up, especially you, you know, if if you have older parents, you know, like our music as a career, like what? What are you? What are you trying to do? It's like when are you going to get a real job? And I always find it fascinating. Um, you know, as as time goes on, you have this generation of, of musicians now that were raised by musicians and this this level of seriousness uh, about music and taking it seriously and and um, being real with its potential in our society you know and, and, yeah and it also can be at a varying degree like you know like my friend Julian Coriel you know uh, Julian was raised by you know his parents. And you know, his father's history of being a guitarist, and I mean, I think Julian—I don't want to speak for him, but I mean, I think we both kind of go through the same thing. Where it was like, my father was such a great jazz drummer that, like, I constantly felt at odds with like gaining his respect mm. as a jazz drummer. That's why I really got into playing other music was because, like, I was like, well, this. Yeah, I remember my dad would put on like a Jeff Beccaro thing. And mm-hmm. He and like me and my uncle were trying to figure it out. And I'd walk over and go, well, what are you guys tripping on? It's just this, you know, and I'm talking about being like 10 years old doing that. Yeah. And they were going, I can't believe it. The kid can play that shuffle, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I kind of got like not a chip on my shoulder, but I felt like an air of confidence in things that were a little bit different than what my father was doing. You yeah. Know? Okay. Where at least like we'd come in on the same playing field where, if I asked my father to sit in like on one of his gigs playing bebop, he'd be like, no, man, maybe you should just sit out, motherfucker, you know, and he got really pissed off. This is what's funny, man, is he got really pissed off when I got into listening to like Ozzy Osbourne as a kid. Yeah. And, you know, he came home with the stack of records the next day and was like, 
he gave me like a who record a police record and the beatles abbey road and he was like if you're going to listen to it listen to this stuff and the irony of all this is you know years later i ended up doing this black sabbath organ jazz record with my, my buddies that we call kind of black the band is called uh, The Casualties of Jazz, where we play all Black Sabbath as organ jazz. It's awesome, man. It's great. I love it. Thank you. And yeah. I mean, here we are, like years later, my father, after breaking my fucking balls about <laughs> listening to Ozzy, yeah. I make this record, and it's the first time, it was the first time my father ever came to me and like, Jim, I don't know why you sweat playing jazz, man. You know, you swing your ass off. That first fucking song on that record, damn. And I went, what the fuck? It took all these, like, it took all these fucking years. No offense to my father. Like, I don't want to talk bad about the dead or anything like that. But, you know, I remember one time a gig came up and it was like, oh, you know, I was going to call Jimmy for that. But, you know, I don't know if he plays much straight ahead jazz. And my father's response was like, well, yeah, man, he don't. But, man, you know, he's got a killer shuffle, man. He can fucking pull his ass off. And like my father told me this story, like as if I was going to be on the same page with him. And I was like, dad, like, why would you say that? Why don't you say, man, you don't know my son. He'll come in and kill it. Like, let me go in there and fail on my own, man. Don't yeah. like talk somebody out of my straight ahead plane. <laughs> like, you know, this was like a point between me and my father, you know, like he'd come and see me play a jazz gig. And like, really, man, I think in a lot of ways he was right. You know, he'd say to me like, man, I can tell like the guys you're playing with don't play jazz all the time. You know, this is probably why I was easy for me to like vibe with Waddy was because my father mm -hmm. is like mm -hmm. was as much of a ball buster as anybody else. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. But it it helped, man. I'm not gonna lie. Like he was right, and it helped. And you know, I had put some serious time into playing brushes, which my father was like untouchable on, and. uh So anyway, sort of lost my path here. I'm sorry, but no, I mean, no, you know, it's it's never been an easy thing with my dad I, you know it was it was great and he loved me and he supported me and and we loved each other but um you know i should tell you some some of the pointers you told me because you get a real kick out of it oh uh, t uh, totally i know there's a story where you were playing something and you were something you were really proud of and and he was like uh, yeah you still got to work on that left hand though oh god <laughs> well no that was the fucking all right <laughs> There's a, the, what are you called? The, um, the Academy Awards. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so this, this Little story show. has a backstory to it. Is that yeah, 2004? That, that, um, I think so. And mm -hmm. then what happened was like the union had some rule that the, the, the pit band couldn't play on stage. Right. <laughs> yeah. So they had to hire a different drummer for this performance. Now, this story kind of got to go back a little bit. Um, I'd done this Rod Stewart record, uh, the songbook record. I'm only credited on one song. But I I'm probably on, I'm probably on more because they did a really shitty job of keeping track of who was playing on what. And, you know, you can tell your Rod symbol, you can tell what you played on, but it was, the producer was nutty. So I know, yeah, I know that I, record. That's great. Uh, yeah. I know that record. Yeah. That's and before I got called in, this drummer, Steve Schaefer, who to me, man, is like one of the greatest semi-under-the-radar drummers of all time. Mm -hmm. You know, Schaefer's on, Steve's on like 
all kinds of television shit and just whatever. I just heard a new record he made that's just outrageously great. But Shafe was in there playing the session with my friend Mike Valerio, and I forget if it was Randy Kerber or Mike Lyon was playing piano, whatever it was. They were doing this session for Rod Stewart, for his producer Richard Perry. We were do- they were doing it on spec or whatever. And I think it was everything from the producer like made the Carnage guy break down Shafe's drums outside in the rain, and he didn't call them back. And next thing you know, I'm on this session. I'm in the next crew of players they bring in. And I call Mike and I go, Mike, you're not going to believe this, but uh, I'm recording with Rod Stewart today. Like, and he's like, holy shit. And he's telling Shafe, who they're doing like a film date or something. He's telling him, hey, my buddy Jimmy Paxson's over there recording with, with Richard Perry. And I'm conveying back all these funny stories because Richard was like, it was like Spinal Tap was a serious film. It was that out to lunch, these sessions. Oh, my God. That fucking weird. And, I mean, I was telling these stories, and they're cracking up. And it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't speaking out of line or anything. I was just sharing what, what was going on around me. So, cut to what this was originally we were talking about here. Up comes this thing to play on stage at the... Uh, academy awards and schaefer's in the in the pit band and the contractor comes to him and goes hey steve you know there's this thing for this movie the triplets at belleville we need a drummer on stage but the union thing we can't have you do the pit and the stage we need to call somebody else for the for the performance who should we call and he goes hey mike what's that guy's name the guy that's doing the rod stewart session with all the funny stories let's call him i gotta meet him Okay. <laughs> that's how I got the gig. That's great. And that's you know, crazy. so I get the call and then we go in there and like I said, man, I'm not much of a reader. I'm not gonna lie. And they go, Well, don't worry, we're gonna give you guys we're gonna send over the chart in advance so you guys can learn this stuff. They send me this big band chart. I shed it to death. I make notes on the chart, you know. Put it in sheet protectors so I can hand it back clean, whatever, and do the do this thing like I get it down to nail it, right? Yeah. So we get there and they go, listen, guys, there's been a change of plans um, <laughs> because it's too many inputs and monitoring is going to be a bitch. The pit band recorded the whole track earlier, and you guys are just going to do a lip sync, but we want you to stick to the chart so it looks like you're really playing, right? Yeah. So I fucking do it, you know? Yeah. I get up there, I play it down just like it is. My father starts calling me afterwards. Jim, you fucking left hand, man. What the fuck are you playing the accent with your with your right hand for, man? You should be playing that accent with your left hand. <laughs> I go, all right. He goes, I go, Dad, it was a you know, it was a lip sync. But I'm just saying, like what you're hearing wasn't even me, but I play that accent. Well, it doesn't matter, man. You know, I mean like, but even in a lip sync <laughs> situation like my father's breaking my balls you know about technique i mean that's probably a long boring story but no, no. Mo- most of the things in my life have come about that way you know what i mean it seems to me like i could be going out to you know to, to buy something random i could be going to the post office and you know somebody will drop something i'll pick it up and give it to him they go hey man you look familiar what are you? oh yeah really uh, oh man i'm doing this film you know can you come in and play on this or yeah, you know, things happen like that. Like I don't believe in like networking. I'm not out there handing out cards, you know. But yet I'm on this fucking stupid 
psycho session where we're all like scratching our heads that, you know, that's how the casualties of jazz record happened was from that Rod Stewart session. Yeah. I encourage listeners to go check that out, man. It's really great. I mean, the, the, the producer had taken like, he was so stoned <laughs> and he took this giant hit off a joint and, uh, he wasn't giving any of it to us. I mean, we were all as sober as it could get. And, um, the producer says to the engineer, he goes, punch it in right there. And he goes, the engineer goes, at the modulation. And, you know, the mic was, the talkback mic was always left open because, you know, so we're hearing all this. And uh, he goes, takes a hit off the joint. He goes, that's not a modulation. That's a key change, you fucking idiot. <laughs> and walks Wait. out of the room. And Chris <laughs> Golden is playing upright bass. And jokingly, in the moment, he starts playing Sweet Leaf, like the guy's stone on the upright. Boom, 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 do, 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 do. Because the guy's out of the room now. I start playing brushes. I lean down in the snare mic and I go to JJ. I go, you getting this? He goes, yeah, I'm getting it. And like three in the morning, he calls me and he's like, he's like, man, that, that Sabbath thing was the best thing we did all day. Let's do a whole record if you know what organ player or whatever. <laughs> so, I mean, again, it's just a byproduct of happening, you know, happening you just happen to be there and something goes down and you react in the moment you know it's like life is a giant improvisation and once in a while you capture it you know so yeah i mean that's pretty much you know how it seems to happen for me it's just like random you know i got the gig with stevie nicks after being like the cleanup guy when sessions would go bad you know ross the drum doctor out in la yeah okay. and i would hang out there this is a long time ago. Like I would just hang out there. I stored some drums there. Keltner's got his shit over there. Abe, Josh Freeze. So, but Ross and I on a social level, like really got on and I had no agenda. I didn't want anything out of it, but I just happened to be on his radar when sessions would go South. Oh man, they rented a drum set from me and then the drummer didn't show up. Can you go out there? They need somebody in like an hour. Can you be there? And or to be like, these guys rented a drum set and they don't even know who to call. I think you'd be the right guy. So he had seen me play like in 10 different situations. Maybe it's a metal situation, R&B situation, a jazz situation, 70s rock situation. So when uh, Hutch from uh, Bonnie Raitt's band came in and said to Ross, yeah, it was just hanging out with Wadi Wattel. They're looking for a drummer for Stevie Nicks. He got mm. suggestions. He suggested me. You know what I mean? Nice. But it wasn't because I left my card or something. You know, right. Hundreds of hours of storytelling and fucking sitting around drinking coffee is what, you know, led to it with the intention never being more than what was happening during the actual hang. <laughs> Did you see the thing we did with Beyonce, Dixie Chicks and Beyonce? I, I did not. I did not. Maybe. I mean, I'm in there playing at the CMAs and I'm we're the only live performance that whole show. There was no pre-record with us at all. They didn't even announce that we were going to play because they wanted it to be a surprise. Mm -hmm. And I'm playing um, a 50s suitcase as a bass drum like an old colonial snare drum and a garbage can. Like I probably record garbage cans more than anything. It's done, you know, change and, your name to Oscar. Yeah. I write no shit, but, uh, it's funny because 
I remember like showing up to that rehearsal and then, you know, the Beyonce's band was up there and they go, what are we going to do about, you know, the, the MPC part, the program? And the band leader goes, well, and I was there hanging out because I, you know, I text for myself at those rehearsals. I mean, all I have is a garbage can and a few things. And we weren't supposed to be in there till four o'clock. And this band leader goes, when you hear the guy, that suitcase, and that garbage can over there sounds just like the MPC or whatever. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, he goes, Jimmy, if you want, you don't have to wait till, you know, your other guys show up. You can start rehearsing with us right now. And I sat down and song starts with the beat, you know, and everybody hears this bass drum, which is the suitcase and this garbage can and this weird snare. And they just go, what the, you know, what is that? What's going on? Like, nobody can believe it. But I mean, again, I mean, it was really just Natalie saying, we're going to do this Beyonce tune in concert. And me hearing the drum beat going, well, you know what? This suitcase that I have and this garbage can sound just like it. Yeah. You know, and then here Beyonce sees the video of that, invites us to play with her at the CMAs doing that song. And her band leader is like, well, definitely bring that drummer because, you know, he he's, sounds just like the record. That's cool. Know? That's cool. So, I mean, you got to, again, it's like I go to the Home Depot and buy a garbage can to use for an overdub instrument in the studio. Did I ever expect it and end up playing it with the Dixie Chicks and Beyonce on the CMA? Isn't it? But somehow this shit comes out of just, you know, being open-minded. There's a cool a video of you playing uh, Stephen Colbert with Charlie Muscle White and Ben Harper with a trash can, just oh, right laying that down, man. It's really, yeah. I'm Thanks, I'm looking man. I'm looking around at my stuff, and it's just it's just so fun to bring that those elements into the studio. And I think that's what what a lot of people are looking for. They're not only looking for you to play, you know, bring all your musical sensibilities as a drummer but also like just you know your creative ideas and like what you can so they can kind of check that box off you know you're you're set to go yeah man well you know that 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 song with charlie mm-hmm. uh backstory on that was we were in the studio we we're at the village and we we're making that record and we're going through everybody's you know okay next song what, what should we work on now and jason mazerski the guitar player is like I got this riff, you know, Jimmy, come out here, let's play, you know, and we go out and we start playing. And for whatever reason, as we're going, the riff he had didn't really develop into um, the, the original intention, you know. And we started taking it in another direction. And I remember, like, grabbing the trash can, like, while I was playing, dragging it over there, putting some stuff on it. And I started to play that beat. Mm-hmm. And then his riff changed, and he hit some pedal, and there was a new sound. All of a sudden, Ben through the glass. I see Ben stand up and like from behind the console, give us two thumbs up and like the finger sign, like keep going, keep going. Mm-hmm. And uh, just went back in the control room and heard it, and they're like, "Man, let's just make it like a twelve-bar blues, like whatever the form." And I was like, "Well, we already kind of have that in there." should we just cut it first and loop it and see if, you know, the guitar lick and the drums are line up. And it was, that's all we did, man. And then Ben, like, well, it's just one of those situations where like Ben wrote words pretty quick. Charlie over, Jesse got in there and played bass. We put everything on that recording. And, um, 
you know, much to all of our surprise, that ended up being like this, the single on that. You know, with Ben, it's never, it's like, oh man, so we co-wrote that, you know, it's always been like fair oh. and Oh, that's amazing. That's everybody. great. So, yeah, because that song without that drum groove, without that idea, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have evolved the way it did. That's so cool, man. Yeah, I mean, I was always shocked when I looked up, uh, you know, fifty ways to leave your lover. Yeah, and here, here's Gad with this intro that you you don't even need to hear the, you know, you can put that on name that tune and you'd be like, that's fifty ways to leave your right. lover. Yet, Gad's not written into the into the writing at all. And, you know, Ben is so generous that way. It's just like, okay, so that one was written by you, me, and and Jason. And it's like, all right, cool. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And it's, it's, that's the way, you know, you hope it would all be. But for the most part, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't go that way. But with, with him, it's, it's really a fair situation. I think anybody who works with him would tell you the same exact thing. I love those stories, man. I love to hear that. It makes me just more of a fan. Of yeah, and he's a monster player too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like he, he really he he kind of approaches things from. I mean, this is me speaking my opinion, so by no means am I quoting anything he said or anything. But you know, it kind of reminds me of like when you record, like you hear those stories of recording, like with Monk or something, where I was like, well, you get one pass, you might get two you know, mm-hmm. maybe three, but you know, two or whatever. And that's really kind of the way it's always been with Ben. It's like, you just go in here. It is, you do it. Boom. It's done. So you're kind of on your toes. You want to make sure that what you play, you know, it's going to be, you know, something that you could stick with the first take. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Right. Right. You're not, not time to experiment. It's not hastily or rushed. But where he does things, we're like, okay, let's roll. And boom, like, you know, you carry that into other situations too because you want to make sure what you play out of the gate is going to be strong enough, you know? Things like you don't want to ramp up to the tempo. You want to just make sure your first downbeat is in the cut, you know? And not rely on technology that you can get in there and fix everything by moving it around. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. The one thing I really did in L.A. early on that, that changed everything was, like, I went to study with Mary Bivak. Yeah. Mary, you know, this is a, just something I just think is valuable for drummers to know. is like, if, you, if you're going through a lot of pains, like hand pains and all this shit, um, you know, I, I was having, like, the worst imaginable carpal tunnel tendonitis. And I was 18 years old at the time. And I ran into Joey Heredia, who I knew through my mother. And, um, I told Joey and he's like, man, you don't need a doctor. You just need to go see this, this teacher, Mary Spivak. And it was kind of like going to see Yoda, you know, (laughs) this guy had taught, um, all the Wackermans. He taught Louis Belzin, Ben Cotler, like you name it, David Garibaldi, Matt Chamberlain was in there. Jeez. I mean, everybody had studied with Mary, and he was 88 years old, the first lesson I took. He changed the whole entire way that I held the stick. He changed 
how I practiced. He told me not to play the way he taught, but to practice the way he taught and let it creep into my playing and the change would take care of itself. Wow. Um, you know, and he changed everything from the sound that I get out of the drum, from what it looks like when I hit a drum. And, uh, you know, I'm not here advertising that I, that I'm here to teach that technique by any means, but if any drummers out there are struggling with hand pains and, and problems, you know, in the forearms or elbows, shoulders, whatever, like, you know, feel free to reach out and I'll take a minute and take a look and tell you what I think is going on yeah. because I can pretty much see, you know, what's happening from, I don't know, Murray died in 94. So 88, 89, I studied with him for six years. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so much of it just comes from, from that. And, uh, I don't know, man, I'm really grateful that I got to study with him when I did. That's, that's amazing. You know? But, uh, there's that, you know, that I think played into a lot with the, the LA, like, you know what I mean? I mean, I don't think any of this shit would have happened for me if, uh, if I think every component along the way was important, whether it be studying or getting yelled at by fucking Wadi or, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> A good example, like Murray taught this upstroke and downstroke, mm-hmm. which really is what healed everything. And it's a hard, it's a hard thing to describe because is it? I mean, like, I mean, could you relate it to the molar technique, or is it different? Not, not the molar technique to me. I, I feel like Murray's thing might you might consider it like a, a modified molar technique in a mm-hmm. way. But it doesn't, Murray's thing never looks like you're playing some, something that you learned. Like, you know, if you look at Carlos Vega back in the day, like, mm-hmm. you know, there's a GRP band where he's playing a solo. I was yeah. just looking at it the other day. Yeah. that That's a good example of what Murray's hand technique looks like. The body's relaxed. Nothing is forced. And he had a way of teaching it where like, He'd teach you the upstroke and downstroke, and you'd think this is the most monotonous thing I've ever done. This is crazy, like paint the fence. You know, it was like Karate Kid kind of shit. And, you know, wax on, wax off. Like, it's like that with Harry. Yeah. And he would say, man, it took me three weeks and six different ways for me to explain it before finally your brain got it. Now, you know, the next student may have taken. 12 different ways. The next student or the one prior may have taken two different ways of explaining it, but Murray would explain it in different ways. So you're studying that and then you're playing all these rudiments. And I'll never forget. I called Murray on the phone one time and I go, Murray, you know, I'm sitting here practicing and it just dawned on me. I think like on the five stroke roll, the first two strokes are an upstroke and the, 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 the fifth stroke in the roll is the accent is a downstroke. And he goes, that's right. He goes, and I purposely didn't tell you that because I wanted you to discover it on your own. Wow. Okay. And it would tell, it would tell me that you are in fact practicing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now I could show you this and you know, the, the thing about what Murray was doing with this downstroke and the upstroke is it was more about what's going on internally in your arm, in your wrist, in your forearm. You know, it wasn't about getting your single stroke roll as fast as hell or whatever. It was about 
well, if you're going to play, if you're going to play it down, you know, if you're going to really come down on the drum, right? Like you're just going to hit a single stroke on a drum. Yeah. Bang. You know, before, before you lift your arm and these are little tiny movements, but that the wrist actually, if you're looking at the wrist, like the hand goes down and the, the wrist itself goes is higher than the rest. Yeah. But you know, a little bit. The wrist has to go down into that position to relax everything that's inside of your arm so you don't hurt yourself. Huh. You don't just lift your arm and not if you if you lift your arm and not uh, yeah, tilt doing, the stick uh, just um you know, I mean I'm talking like I'm talking like tiny little bits uh-huh. but if you don't if you don't bend your wrist forward uh if you don't bend your hand forward this is assuming that your palm is you know facing down and that you're holding the stick the right way yeah if you're if your hand doesn't go a little bit if the wrist doesn't lead then nothing in your forearm and your wrist relaxes enough to protect you from inner injury on the way down huh so he got into that stuff and I'm telling you, man, like I was ready to get the surgery. I was going to a chiropractor who was a specialist in it back then and none of it worked. And I never went under the knife, but, but learning the simple upstroke and downstroke cleared all that up, never had a pain again, but you just can't expect, like I I try to show it to people and they're like, Oh, I get it. Yo, look, I got it. No, you don't have it. (laughs) You really, it's not an instant thing. You know, and I don't have like week after week to teach people to to keep my silence about it. So I try to like give like this kind of rushed version of it so that they can get the point. I don't have a month to sit and wait for you to discover it on your own. You know what I mean? Do you think do you think a, a video of you explaining this and demonstrating this would be useful? I do. Um, I've been having trouble, though conveying uh like when i try to do it even teaching it in person like trying to convey the uh you know the time you should allow yourself to develop it before you think you got it in the bag right right just like not to jump in this assumptive mode of like oh i just did it i got it you know oh that's easy come on you know like I, i i sometimes it's the same with like the concept of you know, like the triplet vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Like Joe Sample and I would talk about triplet vocabulary and how everything breaks down into like these triplets. And like you try to explain that to a student, like, well, I don't think you have a triplet vocabulary. You know, that's why you can't play a shuffle. That's why your shit don't swing. Like, you know, whatever. And it's like, they, oh, well, you know, they, how could this just have anything to do with it? No, I'm just telling you, like, John Bonham had a triplet vocabulary, Elvin Jones had a triplet vocabulary. Mm-hmm. You must have it. You know, it's it's the same. It's like it's not an instant thing. It's something that you're going to have to play enough and do enough that it becomes second nature. You know, you can't just look at it like, oh, I just did an upstroke. That's the accomplishment to blow it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a video of it, sure. Explaining a five-stroke roll that way, like if you play a five-stroke roll, I know you can't see this right now, but if you play a five-stroke roll and you go two strokes down on the right, two strokes down on the left and then an accent with the right. Okay. So that's Mm -hmm. all downs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now 
But if you do it with the first two strokes on the right being an upstroke, see, so, oh yeah, those are those are these two strokes. You can't see it right now. But these these two strokes here are coming from me lifting my wrist. The stick goes forward and bounces. These are the ups, and then bang, that's the down. So if you figure it out that you're playing. You're moving your wrist like instead of going down, you know, all those movements. Now you're getting from one up and down movement three strokes out of the leading hand. Now, if you're playing on the, if you're playing the groove, right? Yeah. I mean, whatever. This goes right. You're just playing drums. This is a simple version, right? Yeah. So now you're going to hit the cymbal. Right? Yeah. There's an upstroke on that last stroke of the hi hat between there and the cymbal. That's not a downstroke and then a downstroke on the cymbal. And if I go to a club or something and see a drummer, like a practicing a drummer that's on his way up or whatever, or let's say it's somebody who's stiff. Yeah. Typically, that's what I see is that that upstroke is not being employed within their playing. Oh, if I go in a place and, yeah. and see somebody play and they look very graceful when they're playing, yeah. I can see that the upstroke off of the hi-hat that happens before they go to the tom or the cymbal. And at the same time, they're not going to have hand problems because they're setting up that move in a way that will relax the internal you know, function of the arm. You know, Mike Dawson? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We're We're planning on doing a drum clinic here for Music City Drum Show in August. And my co-host and I are hosting, this is planned for August 9th. The drum show is August 8th on Saturday and August 9th. We're going to do a thing with Mike Dawson and Near Z. Nice, man. Well, Mike was a student of my father's. Wow, okay, cool. The first time I saw Mike play, I did not know that. He was playing, I didn't even know him. He was. I didn't know his name or nothing. He was playing in a bar in Atlantic City. And I was there playing with Stevie Nicks and the bass player and I were in this bar. It's probably like the night before our show or whatever. And it was a tequila bar and we're in there drinking. And I'm looking at the drummer and I go to Al, the bass player. I go, Al, I think that guy studied with my father. <laughs> and he goes, what? He goes, how can you tell? I go, I'm looking at his hands. That's amazing. And it's that, it's that thing I'm telling you about, about the upstroke. Because my father studied with Mary after I did. Like my father came in. I was studying Mary for a while, with Mary for a while. My father dug what he saw, and he signed up for lessons. There's a That's whole other story to that about Mary kicking me out and giving my dad my lesson slot, you know, whatever. But that's besides the fact. Uh, but I went up to Mike and was like, hey, man, I was just checking you out. You sound great. I go, did you ever study with a guy out here named Jim? And he goes, Paxson? I go, yeah. He goes, how'd you know? I go, I could tell by looking at your hands. I go, I'm his son. You know, it's amazing. But That's look great. at Mike's hands. Like Mike's a good example of that as well. Like he's just very relaxed. Do you know the story about my father with the dog shit? You might have talked about it in in the pocket. You know, my father when he was ill sent me into the U of Arts to to teach, and I had a lot of these private students. And um, I told my dad he was asking me. He was in the hospital. He's like how's it going over there? And I go, it's going all right, dad. You know, some of these kids, like they squeeze the stick so hard that they can't get a sound out of the drum. Yeah. 
And my father, in his very matter-of-fact ways, goes, yeah, man, we'll... Uh... I remember he was like with a toothpick. He was obsessed with his fucking teeth towards the end. And he goes, yeah, man, we'll uh... ask him if they have dogs. <laughs> and, you know, the trained reaction to my father, which I learned because he always had a point and a weird way around it, I go, I would never say, why dogs? You know, I would. I just agreed. I mean, okay. <laughs> Okay. You know, agree for, uh, yes be, you know before no just like yeah okay okay yeah well dad i'm just curious though like why do you want me to ask them if they have dogs and he goes he goes well man you know if they have a dog you know chances are to take the dog for a walk dog needs to take a shit <laughs> i go yeah and he goes well and he's crumbling up a piece of paper at this point you know crumbling it and he goes he lays it on the table in front of him. He goes, you know, we'll ask them when the dog takes a shit. And he goes and picks up the paper and he goes, do they pick it up as gently as possible as to not crush the shit? Or do they pick up the shit and squeeze it really fucking hard? And I started laughing and he goes, tell them they pick up the sticks to pick up the sticks the same way they pick up the dog's shit. And dude, it worked. Of course, I'm never. You're never gonna forget that. It's amazing. And it really. I mean, I'm. I'm grateful that I learned all this stuff from my father. You know, I don't have him around anymore as a, as a source of information. So all I have to go on is his stories. And like, he left me a great box of CDs, which he claims if you learn everything in there, you'll be a great jazz drummer. You know. But um, you know, it's there's there's that. You know, you have to put in the time, and and really, I mean. If somebody comes forth with a problem, you at least got to know what the problem is, you know, and then have some creative way of explaining it, which, as just mentioned, <laughs> my father had very colorful ways of uh, describing it in a way that you wouldn't forget. You know what I, mean? I, I just so appreciate this, man, your your stories and your history. It's been I hope I hope it lines up enough that it makes sense, because, you know, I know I have a tendency to ramble and people are looking at me like, so what the fuck was he just talking what? about? <laughs> Well, enjoy some practice time. I'll be in touch. Um, thank yeah, you. Stay so well, much. man. You too, my friend. Uh, I'm a little nice out of it. I, I ain't gonna. I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm a little bit fucking loopy, dude. So, I know this is a strange time to do this. So, I hope it. I hope what we talk about comes across as clear as it would if I was uh, in more of a, you know, the, the world is normal headspace. When, when the curve flattens out and you come to Nashville, man, I hope we have a chance to connect and meet in person, man. I've enjoyed Definitely. enjoyed watching you play, and I uh, hope to keep in touch. All right, bro. I'll talk to you later. Okay. See you, Jimmy. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Bye. So there you go. My interview with Jimmy Paxson. Thank you, Jimmy, so much for taking some time out of this downtime that we all have and how we're all managing it. Stay tuned next week for our annual roundtable with myself, Zach Albetta, my co-host, and Nick Ruffini from The Drummer's Resource. We spend some time talking about how we're dealing with this coronavirus lockdown and we're going to talk about some resources you can access for those of us that are hurting financially during this downtime and places you can find access for relief so tune in for that next week still on the calendar august 8th and 9th we've got the music city drum show august 8th on a saturday and august 9th zach and i will be hosting a drum clinic with mike dawson and near z here in nashville put that on your calendar So far, we're still planning on doing that, and uh, fingers crossed, 
We'll make that happen, and we will keep you up to date with any developing news. For now, stay at home, stay safe, practice, learn, grow, spend time with your loved ones, and wash your hands, wash your sticks, do whatever you need to do to stay safe. We all want to come out on the other side of this and be able to see each other and hug each other and make some music together again. So, I'd like to say I hope to see you around, but I really do hope to see you all around when we're through this, and stay safe, y'all. Bye-bye.